the situation in the country of Lebanon is war between who? The Muslims and who? Christians. You think these are born-again Christians or are they cultural Christians? They're cultural, okay? This is their culture. They're Christians. That doesn't mean they know the Lord personally. Now, some do, but, but the, the, when you say Christians, you don't mean people who have, you know, had a legitimate conversion to Christ, but they're political, cultural type Christians. Well, the Reformation was a huge mixture of the genuine things, and then it was even a, to a much larger degree a mixture of the political things, and these political things became cultural things, and so that Europe eventually became either, a, in Europe with all the nations, you became either a Protestant nation, or you became a Catholic nation, or you became a combination, and it was pretty clear-cut. In other words, uh, the Catholics would group together, and the Protestants would group together, and, and uh, there would be these definite distinctions, okay? All of Germany basically turned Protestant, you see? All of Spain basically stayed Catholic, you see? I mean, just as an example of two big countries. Uh, of course, those countries were not the same then as they are now, but in general, that's what happened, you see. England turned Protestant eventually after many struggles, you see. Uh, some other countries, uh, like, like Italy, uh, of course, that's where Rome was, stayed Catholic, you see. So a lot of these things were happening like that. And uh, at any rate, without the preparation, nothing would have happened to jar... This, to jar the situation in Europe to a degree that these people could come, could rise up, uh, get into the Bible for themselves, f discover the truth, have the Lord mercifully shine his light, they would get saved, they would find the truth, basically about the very elementary type relationship with Christ. Redemption, uh, you know, and, and some basic things like this. Uh, concerning most of the truths that uh, we would consider really critical, the Reformation only skimmed the surface, barely skimmed the surface. But they jolted everything to the extent that from that point on, uh, uh, people could, could continue this search into the Word and read it freely and discuss it openly, and uh, many truths were discovered and found. You see, I'm way ahead of Philadelphia because that's our next church to cover, right? The church in Philadelphia, which is the recovered church, back to the original blueprint. <laughs> but that's how they got all the light, is they sat around in meetings like this and they, they, they would read parts of the Word all week and they would come together and they would just discuss the Word. They would pray and ask for the Lord's light and talk and discuss and light would come out. And just a little light here, and it would just grow, and everything. And because everybody was reading the Bible like crazy, you see, then it just came out. All the truths came out. I mean, and then people would get into. They would just dedicate themselves to lines or avenues of truth, like the second coming of Christ. And so that that for the first time got clarified. You understand? Martin Luther didn't know all. He, he yeah. was. He, he knew very little about that kind of truth. You see, but but he was one of the big bulldozers that just, you know, uh, caused this tremendous loosening up to take place so that all this could follow for the, 
next, you know, nearly 500 years. Okay. Uh, so, there, you know, uh, the migration of the Greeks, them, the Greeks being basically so much freer in their mind, as we mentioned, the rise of literary men, the famous universities that were developing, the uh, tremendous uh, prestige of Erasmus, who, who did the first Greek translation, then the formidable princess, princesses of Europe who rose up from all these little fiefdoms, you know, and that uh, they rose up and protected their reformers, you see, because they wanted to throw Rome off, but they couldn't do it. They're just military people or, you know, political people. So they, they, uh, they found the reformers very convenient, and the reformers found their military protection very convenient. It was all very sovereign, and so that, uh, that was a great... Without it, they would have been crushed. But this, the princesses rose up to protect them. The restlessness of the people based on uh, just the, the uh, evolutionary development of events that brought things to a kind of a uh, situation where uh, people no longer could just accept things because that's the way it's been for hundreds of years. It might not be true. The big why, you know, became, a, became okay. Whereas it used to be, that question was, it was heretical. What, you question, you know, anything? So why to ask why became okay, you see. Uh, then uh, this this uh, very sovereign uh, invasion of the Turks who were who conquered the Middle East and who were spreading west and actually got across to some degree into uh, Greece, which caused the Greeks to migrate further into Europe. Uh, that threat that they would at any time just sweep over the rest of Europe kept Rome and kept uh, the main European leader, Charles V of Germany, uh, totally occupied. So that these reformers were all the time busy, busy, busy. And any time these guys would uh, think about doing something active to deal with them, then they always had to, to consider the Turks. And they couldn't just they couldn't uh, give their attention to it and their armies to it. So that was a big help. Then uh, the paper and printing press, which I want to mention, the discovery of the New World, uh, it was not a big thing. At the time, the Reformation was really banging its way in and out of Europe. But uh, it wasn't that long after those early days that the New World uh, became a, a kind of a escape hatch, you know, escape valve release point <laughs> and they uh, from because of persecution they just fled all the way across the Atlantic to this virgin land and began to practice what they considered uh, a religion according to their conscience and that's the basic foundation of America and then the flagrant atrocities of Rome that uh, this this as I mentioned when we covered Thyatira this is history and this is even in the uh, Catholic history books, okay? Uh, Catholicism basically doesn't try to hide that uh, because you can't hide history. See, e even, even you don't like Jesus Christ and, and uh, you know a lot about history, you have to admit there was this person. You can't deny that. See? Even you don't agree he was, he was God, still he was somebody there. He, he wasn't, it wasn't an imaginary thing, right? So they, they, they can't hide this, but 
basically they would take a stance, well, the doctrine was pure, but the, the men were, you know, the, there were, you know, the men were fallible. They, they could make mistakes. But the doctrine was pure. Then the Reformation came up and said, no, the real problem is the doctrine was impure. And it created a situation where all this corruption could come in. You see? And so you have this kind of concept that what you call ortho, orthodoxy, which is, the, which is true doctrine, you see, follows, uh, uh, doesn't follow, it's the source of, of orthopraxy, which is your conduct, you see. So what you, your, your, your faith, if it's living and real, of course, determines your, your conduct and your practice. So the reformers were here, no, it's not just a matter of some wrong conduct, it's a matter of truth. There's no truth. So if we get the truth right, everything else will be okay. Something like that. Okay. Then I want to mention just, uh, now this is just a little bit of background, I want to mention some points. First of all, with the paper and the printing press, I mentioned how when this, this thing, uh, first of all, you know, uh, uh, Famously known as you know Gutenberg and the Gutenberg Press and so forth. Well, he he was the guy who who put it all together. Uh, they wanted to get a, have a way to print things. I mean, the the age of copying things manually by hand, and that's basically the way the monks made their money and sold copies of Bibles to uh, fantastically wealthy people, kings and princesses and things like that. You see, it cost a lot of money, and they. They conceived that if they could print it, they could become very wealthy because look what they could just do it. And so they did invent uh, two things, not only the printing press, but paper was not available at that time uh, in the way we know it. Okay, their, their paper was, was uh, really, a, uh, it was laboriously made and not, not mainly from wood. Okay, so when paper became really available, and the printing press, this happened just, I mean, it just uh, happened so simultaneously with the Reformation. And so when people taught and spoke and wrote, these printers could take it and print it and, and by the thousands. I mean, within a week, what somebody said could be heading all over Europe, you see. And this was, this was this, without this, the Reformation wouldn't have made it. Because there was there was nothing to I mean you, you you would you write so you wrote it you wrote one copy how many people get to read that or so you spoke it and say two hundred heard it that's nothing you see but when it started sailing out all over Europe then that that really uh, changed a lot yeah. well these guys the 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 first printers they were secular people and they really did go for the money I told you a little bit how they would sell some of the early Bibles under the pretext that they were copied, hand copied, and therefore got these exorbitant prices. Well, uh, of course, they were discovered before long, and so uh, <laughs> the prices came way down, but printing became very popular. Uh, what I failed to mention was that there was a time, of course, when uh, some very, very uh, consecrated Christians came into the printing realm and use their printings totally and solely for the distribution of truth. And these printers, I, 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 I feel like I need to be faithful to say something about them. Some of these guys uh, were faithful unto death. They really paid the price. 
because they were threatened with death. If you, if you print one more thing, you know, anything to do with the Bible or anything to do with uh, what so-and-so yeah. said, then uh, uh, we'll cut off your hands first so you can't print. If you still let that press go, we'll, we'll destroy the press. Or if you still do it, we'll burn you at the stake. I mean, they were threatened. And, and, and uh, not just a few of them were, were tortured in some kind of way, yeah. lost their hands or were killed. You see, uh, it was. It's like it's like it's like a house is halfway on fire, and then you start to think we better put this fire out. And so you get you start to throw buckets of water on it. See, it's too late. Yeah, that's right. See, th they tried to crush the printing. It was too late. It 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 had, it, it had infected everything too much, and too many people were rising up all over. They couldn't do it. You see, and they were doing it underground. It wasn't like you could just go up to a print shop and say we're you know, you're out of business. Uh, it was being done, and people were getting copies of various articles of truth and books of the Bible and things like that that uh, was changing. Well, it was shocking. I mean, the the talk, the gossip of the of the day was not about uh, <laughs> you know secular things. It was about uh, who's what's right, the truth that just came out that we read about last month. Or what we've known all our life traditionally, you see, that this became the gossip of Europe. Uh, okay. Anyway, uh, we we need to have an appreciation for these guys. Then uh, we mentioned the forerunners, uh, uh, Wycliffe and Huss, and so we don't need to spend more time there. How they were ahead of their time, but they were necessary. You see, they were necessary, even though they were ahead of their time. Uh, they they helped soften the soil for the truth to come out. And uh, in, the, in the case of Huss, of course, he had to pay for it with his life. He was, he was burned at the stake. And his followers, of course, uh, in Bohemia became the Hussites, who later became <laughs> very later in a long relationship were the Amish that we know here in America. Okay. Then we, had, uh, we spent a long time talking about Martin Luther, so we don't need to talk anymore about him. Then Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, these were, the, these were real leaders uh, in the early phase of the Reformation. Then there was uh, persecution was rising up uh, through the order of the Jesuits that was raised up at that time. And they, they slammed into the Reformation like a hurricane. Okay, they just uh, went into it uh, with tremendous religious fervor and there was numerous massacres. I don't mean just a few people burned at the stake. In some cases, uh, maybe as much as a thousand people would be killed at one time, you see. And that happened many, many times. The massacres, they would call them massacres. And some of the ones that were massacred were some of these uh, that are under here, the Waldenses, Albigenses, the Hussites, Lollards, and so forth. A lot of different groups. Uh, uh, not... Uh, Long after this, very very close to this, William Farrell was raised up on the French side of Switzerland. I tried to give you a little idea of the, the, uh, that Switzerland, not like today, was just a little thing, but it was a compilation of, of things that was the intersection of many countries. Well, that's still true today. And, and so uh, the French side was really there, uh, and the Re Reformation took off with uh, Farrell originally and then it went to Calvin and uh, Calvin carried it kind of to its peak in the city of Geneva and we went into all that so I won't repeat that.
unless you have some questions about it later when we get to it. Then uh, John Knox of Scotland uh, was one of the leading reformers in the north, and he had contact with Calvin. That's where he got some of his basic, uh, uh, you know, solidity in the truth. And he went in, and uh, Scotland was also swaying back and forth all the time between uh, Catholicism and, and uh, the Reformation. And finally, the, the uh, preaching of Knox and others began to prevail, and Scotland ultimately turned Protestant. And, and all of these things basically turn into state churches later, just like uh, uh, the state church in Germany is the Lutheran church, right? And so in several places, these, these reformed churches became the state churches. Okay, same thing in Scotland, which is, which is our version of the Presbyterian church, Presbyterian church in America. Yeah. They, the th one of the things they recovered was the Presbytery. Uh, and I don't say recovered it in the real, true scriptural sense, but they had, they had a, a church practice of the presbytery, which is the uh, eldership-type concept, and so uh, they became known as the Presbyterians in America. They began to be known as that. Okay, then on page two, we talked about the Reformation in England, and here how that... Uh, uh, Number one, there was not just one person like in Germany with Luther, but in England there was, it was mainly the word was going out in a printed form. And that printed word was the real vehicle the Lord used. England became one of the best places for the Reformation eventually. Uh, getting there was a real battle, okay? But it was the word going out that did this, and we'll get to this a little bit later. Then how uh, King Henry of England, how, you know, he... he uh, divorced his wife and uh, kept trying to get an heir to the throne by marrying uh, somebody uh, after he divorced his wife. And, and uh, he was the one who threw off the Pope as the head of the church and he himself became the head of the church. And that was the beginning of the Anglican church where the head of the state is also the head of the church. So they kept the Roman, they kept the, they kept the Roman uh, system, but they, he replaced the Pope, okay? And, and uh, of course, all this was modified down through the centuries, but the basic concept still holds true. It's the Anglican Church, which in this country is Episcopalian Church. Uh, they, uh, if you were if you were in England, the Queen is still the head of the church today, and the uh, bureaucracy or the organizational setup uh, is not Roman Catholic, but it's the nearest thing to it in Protestantism. Okay, it's quite. It's quite close as far as the Reformation goes. It's uh, some of you. I think y'all some have Episcopalian backgrounds. Very, it's very ritualistic. Very ritualistic. Okay. Uh, then uh, the Puritans uh, uh, are raised up in England, and uh, some people think that they they uh, they. Uh, began in the USA, you see, that they yeah. were raised up somewhere here. No, they, they fled here. They, they, were the, right. they, were, they were called the dissenters or the nonconformists, and they were raised up in Europe, and they fled here after it got too hot for them because they were being persecuted, okay? Why? Because they stood against not only the Catholic Church, but they also stood against the mixture of the Reformed Church 
with the world and also with its mixture with Catholicism because it didn't come all the way out. Okay, so they stood against both and got into a lot of trouble like that and uh, fled to the New World. And our, our first religious uh, history for us, if you're an American, is these Puritans. Okay, they, they uh, uh, one thing you have to say for them, regardless of whether you agree with them or not, and with the amount of light they had back, you know, in the 17th century even, uh, they were absolute people, yeah. and they did take care of their conscience. Uh, so, uh, consequently, uh, there was no doubt a blessing with them. And I think most people, most Christians, would really agree that the blessing America enjoys is really based on the fact that it uh, began and, and maintained certain fundamental principles, which we have lost quite a bit of the, uh, you know, the uh, core of those as time has gone on. Nevertheless, it's compared to other countries, it still has quite a bit. So it still has some blessing and uh, obviously uh, there's not a lot of countries in the world today that are doing okay. They're just not a lot. Most of them have uh, unsolvable problems. And the USA is really an exception. Everybody knows that, okay? Even though it has a lot of problems. But it, it is an exception. Uh, then, when the Reformation really uh, was taking root in England after all the wild swings with the different kings and queens that swung them to Protestantism and then somebody swung them back to Catholicism. They were, if you were a person in England for about 150 years, you were just going crazy, uh, not knowing what your next faith was going to be on who was to be the next king or queen, you know, because they kept changing the national faith. And this meant what? You were just a political Christian. You were a cultural person. You weren't, it wasn't really God's move. That was just really a political thing. But, also, God used politics to establish uh, some kind of leaders eventually that would provide protection and freedom for people to have uh, a kind of a religious liberty. And when that was even violated to some extent, then we had the migrations to America. Okay? Anyway, some of the big. Uh, 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 names that were very useful. Uh, we went over uh, Tyndall, Wesley, Whitfield, Spurgeon, others. Uh, I didn't, there's a couple of things. I, I don't think I gave really due credit to uh, William Tyndall. He was the uh, first guy, of course, after, uh, uh, you know, Wycliffe, who died much earlier. But he was, he was, uh, he was the rich, or the first real one who upset all of England. Okay, he, he was really the first guy after Wycliffe. Wycliffe was just ahead of his time. Uh, and Tyndall, Tyndall was a very scholarly person. He was a very gentle person. He wasn't like Luther at all. You know, uh, Luther it was like a bull in a china shop. Just, you know, <laughs> whatever breaks, breaks. It's not my fault. I'm just here for the truth, right? Uh, Tyndall was a real, in fact, he was small and real meek and real mild and uh but he but but he was very he, he had a heart for god and he was very intelligent and in or, or i should say he's very well educated and intelligent 
And so he he just he he felt he should pour all of his his energies into the uh, study of the scriptures and so forth. And through these, and in contact with other men of like mind at that time, kind of in an underground way, uh, Tyndall really uh, he did a lot of damage to the traditional and uh, man-made systems of the day. Uh, and as he went on, just I mean, as he got older and, and he got bolder, as he got more confident in his in uh, in knowing the word. Uh, he got bolder, and it was just something that was evolving. Well, uh, things came to a point, and Tyndall came to this kind of conviction. That is, he saw that whatever he would do or anyone else would do would, would be wasted unless the English people had their own, uh, the, the Bible in their own language. Okay, he saw it would be wasted. Because even the reformers were so prevailing and overcoming in their ability to expound the truth, if someone got away from them, and and you know at this time the Catholics were trying to counter everything, then they would just sweep away, and they had nothing there to say no. The Bible says this, and you're saying something from the Bible. Don't tell me your opinion. Just tell me what the Bible says. You see, they they didn't have. They couldn't do that because the Bible wasn't in English. Yeah. But Tyndall knew Greek and he knew Hebrew. He could read it, but he knew no, the, the average person couldn't do it. So it became his great passion to translate the Bible into common English, everyday vernacular. Okay, and this was his passion. And he tried to do it, but he couldn't do it on England because there was too much persecution and opposition to it. So he fled to the continent. Okay and uh, established himself in Holland, in that area right in there, uh, maybe some in Denmark, but I think mostly in Holland. And there he began to translate, and he would uh, sneak aboard ship. I mean, he, he would sneak these copies or these manuscripts of different books in the Bible. He'd sneak them aboard the, the shipping going back and forth across the English Channel. And uh, he would to his contacts in England, and then they would take them to the printing presses, and these things started scattering all over England, and people had copies, and and this just enraged all of the uh, the uh, Catholic hierarchy, and they they plotted and planned, and they they even their first attempt was to buy every copy that was printed. Yeah, they bought them all, so they were going to outbuy all of England, you see. But they, anyway, this didn't work, and they thought they bought every copy, and then here came a fresh batch of copies. So they just got totally frustrated in uh, trying to outspend the rest of the, all the people. So uh, finally it was determined that uh, you know they had to do something more drastic. Well, before I mention about that, I should say uh, this, the, the famous story, and I think this is mentioned in nearly any kind of history, is where Tyndall, uh, he was actually at one point he was in a debate with uh, one of the Catholic, uh, you know, uh, authorities, you know, or they call them divines, you know. Uh, they were in a debate, and of course he was, the, the guy that was for Rome was uh, really debating quite strongly about, you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, theological system that they had. And, and uh, Wycliffe, he, Anything concerning the Bible, he just he just turned into a little tiger, you know. 
and he was so strong about it. And uh, uh, anyway, this went on back and forth, back and forth. And finally, Kendall, he just, he just, he, I mean, his burden, he was so grieved and so outraged at this kind of ignorance. And, and finally, in, in the presence of quite, you know, some others, I don't know how many, this is when he said words to the effect that you know, he was going to translate the Bible into English. And he said, I'll see to it that every plowboy in England knows the Word of God better than you do. Like that. And then he, and then he fled, to, fled to Holland and started sending this stuff back and forth. Sometimes, all, sometimes they would even get lost at sea. He just would, yeah, he'd start all over and he'd translate. And so he got all the New Testament and I think uh, maybe the first five books of the Old Testament translated at least that many but anyway he got the whole new testament translated and he just that was his that was his goal he said i he to these guys who were the top leaders in catholicism he he, he told them to their face i'll see to it that every plowboy in england you know knows the word of god better than you do because they didn't know it they didn't know it and neither did the plowboys and that's why he had a burden <laughs> he was going to he and it and it really happened it really happened then, of course, uh, they couldn't take that. So finally, through some plotting and scheming, they tracked him down. And uh, through a, a plot, they caught him. And uh, uh, he was martyred, and he was burned at the stake. Uh, so he was, he was truly, a, a, he was a real martyr. Yeah, just like in Revelation, when John says, I was on the Isle of Patmos, you know, for two reasons, right? For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. Well, he was really there like that, I would say. He was exiled, and he was there for, for the Word of God and for the testimony Amen. of Jesus. And, and uh, he was marred like that. And he was the one I was trying to, to, to uh, think about. I, I thought it was him, but I wasn't sure. And so uh, Thursday night I looked it up. I, I was with Tim. He was the one that when he was being martyred, and I'll never forget this because I'd read this so long ago, and it really struck me. But when he was perishing in the flames, uh, his famous, his last words, his last words were, Oh God, he just cried out, Oh God, open the King of England's eyes. And he, he died like that. You know, he said, Oh God, and the flames were coming, Oh God, open the King of England's eyes, like that. And he died like that. Wasn't he, wasn't he real? <laughs> he was a real shining star, don't you agree? Okay, then Wesley, we'd spent a lot of time on Wesley and Whitfield and how they, uh, by this time, England was definitely very much Protestant, how they, they really, uh, they really caused England to undergo some tremendous uh, reviving. And, uh, bear in mind that this is a characteristic of Sardis is people would get revived and then they would become not having a, a way to sustain their Christian life day by day they would very quickly fall back off and so they would have to be revived again you see so it became a system of revivalism and in Christianity today the fundamental side of it is a side that really emphasizes revivalism. Okay, actually, I'm a product of revivalism. I got saved through a revival. Okay, so I, I don't disappreciate it, 
uh, and I don't knock it, but we have to realize that revivalism is due to uh, a state that the, it, it means the church is in a state that's to the that's so low that you have to continually have something spectacular. So you, this is why in, in fundamentalism people get saved m- multiple times because between revivings they go so far down they lose any assurance that they were ever saved in the first place. So they then they repent and get saved again and so forth. And so they 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 really <laughs> go through this all the time. You, you have to you have to spend a little time in fundamentalism to appreciate this. But it's like that very much. Uh, but anyway, it is still based on a lot on revivalism, right? Uh, we talked about Whitfield and then Spurgeon. Uh, then on E, there were others here, and uh, of course, you know, we didn't have the time for even these guys. I had to uh, uh, Spurgeon. I would like to talk a lot about because I know more about him personally than any of the others. Uh, due to those volumes I got when I was still in college. And, uh, uh, well, he, he was just a, uh, he was just a very uh, prevailing fundamental preacher and through his ministry from age 17 to 57 for 40, exactly 40 years, <laughs> uh, he, he led uh, thousands to the Lord. He was a city man. His his play, his headquarters was London. He was a city man. He was a city preacher. Uh, he, just the opposite of Wesley and Whitfield, who were all the time on horseback going all over England. He he stayed right there in London. Uh, crowds flocked to him. Their biggest problem became a place to meet. And finally, through uh, the membership, grew so large. And uh, they they were they were Baptist there. Okay, uh, he was a brand of Baptist. Uh, it wouldn't be it wouldn't match today's Baptist exactly, but there there are a lot of similarities. Uh, anyway, uh, they finally built this huge tabernacle in London called the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and uh, he he preached from that. Now you have to realize these places were enormous in size. And say five or eight thousand people could fit into them. You just think of the size of a place like that. Yeah. And there's no microphone. That's right. Everything is just, <laughs> you see. So they would have to project their voice tremendously. That's right. Oh, that's right. And uh, of course, they suffered a lot from being being what horse, right? You know. You know, Hercule. You know what being horse means? Lose your voice. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Lose your voice, okay? You got, you got you got a hoarse throat, hoarse voice, R- raspy. In fact, he under the pulpit, he always kept a little dish of hot chili peppers. And if he started to lose his voice, that was kind of he would just dip this and put it on his tongue and uh, try to start, you know, try to get the juices <laughs> going again. Yeah, it was that. It was just that way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They, uh, they, they, uh, they were not thirty minutes in a prayer. No. Uh, I have, I have all of his messages for twenty years, his Sunday morning messages in, in, in volumes, and 
uh, to read one message is about equivalent to reading, say, three life studies, something like that. Wow. <laughs> they're long. <laughs> and they're, you know, anyways. <clears throat> so through reading a lot of that, of course, uh, I got to know him got to know what he was like and what he really believed uh, quite quite more than these other people. Uh, okay, I won't go that anymore. One other guy I would like to mention as a famous English person who really affected things during the Reformation. He was a brethren, but historically, uh, he was really not uh, his... What, what his life was more valuable to those who were on the Reformation side and those who, who uh, became the brethren and began to have that Philadelphia experience in the 19th century. Okay. And that was George Mueller who lived in Bristol, England. Okay. And most of you know George Mueller. He's under, under E, under others. I didn't put him down because I thought he's a brethren. I'll just save him for Philadelphia. But actually... Actually, uh, his his life in the book, uh, the books that were written about him, or his biography that was written after he died, probably helped more uh, just Christians in general than just a, a slim line like the Brethren. Uh, if you ever get a chance, I'd recommend his biography. He what he really his burden was very simple. He wanted to show he wanted to show that an just a plain old average believer, and that's what he considered himself, okay? That an average believer, if he was wholly given to God, and he, was, he, would, and he just was for the Lord's interest, that uh, he could live a life and have a prayer relationship with God, that he could prove that God was the living God and was a God who answered prayer. So uh, through this, uh, he began to really give himself to prayer, and he, he kept these diaries, and that's how we know that he had nearly two million answers to specific prayers in his lifetime. Two million documented. That's a lot, that's a lot of writing, much less a lot of answers. Isn't it? So he was known as the apostle of prayer, okay? Uh, not, not, not when he was alive. They, he would never let anybody say that, but later he you know, was called that. Uh, there are some littler books that you could read. I think some of y'all have his little, uh, what's it called, Answers to Prayer, a little book that's not like a hundred pages or something. That's good too. Just you get a flavor of how uh, he was just raised up to prove one thing, that that uh, God was living and he, he heard and answered prayer. If you, And he had, he had really experientially found out it, that if he prayed according to certain things that were matching the Lord, uh, the prayers were, were guaranteed. And he found out if you really violated these things, the Lord wouldn't honor that prayer. So he learned how to pray, and he tried to teach others that way too, through his writings and so forth. Uh, anyway, he was like that, and of course I uh, don't know if I mentioned, but he's the one, of course, who had that that orphanage in England, in Bristol. And I don't know the exact number of years. I think it was 30-something years. But anyway, 10,000 kids went through his orphanage uh, over that period of time. And he totally fed, clothed, housed them, uh, educated them, 
and met all their needs, and he did not at one time, at any time, did he solicit not one shilling <laughs> for that, but he relied totally on prayer. Okay, that was George Mueller Bristol. A lot to say about him. Then the inner life saints, I should say a little bit about them too. Uh, at this time, during the time of the Reformation, these inner life saints were raised up. You noticed I skipped them last time, remember? Uh, and, and of course, I don't put them all here, all here, but these are just some that, that to my mind, were outstanding uh, inner life people that during the time of the Reformation were raised up. Now, please understand this, okay? Uh, these, these inner life people were not accepted by the Reformation. They were outlaws. Do you understand my talking? They were uh, renegades. Do you understand me? They were considered to be uh, they were considered to be uh, too radical, too extreme, and so the Reformation didn't like these kind of people. Uh, the, uh, we'll see next time with Philadelphia how this was done, raised up in groups corporately. Okay, but these were individuals that were raised up, and uh, they were too much for the Reformation. And so, most in most cases, the Reformation opposed them. In most cases, until you got down to real modern history, uh, even then, I would say basically the Reformation opposed them. Caspar uh, Schwingfeld was a contemporary of Luther, and had tremendous uh, advancement in the in the experience of the inner life, Christ living in him, and so forth. And uh, he has some tremendous writings. I have them. I have I have a copy of of one of his articles somewhere, but I have I don't have a clue where to start to look for it. So I, I started saying, I'm going to find it. I said, I'll never find it. I'll never find it. So I, I, if I read you just two paragraphs out of that, you would say, you wouldn't believe he lived in Martin Luther's day. But see, he was too much. He was too much. And they, they didn't have this kind of mentality that he had. Uh, he was way ahead of his time. And so basically, he was rejected. He was considered just another. He was, uh, the Pope was, a, was an enemy on one side and he was an enemy on the other you see and so they were both the devil uh, but you know uh, again uh, in any of this kind of conflicts back then we have to let the Lord be the judge because we just can't comprehend the, the mentality of that age even you try you think you, you, you have some thoughts you do you, you couldn't really do it I don't think it's possible now to really project ourselves back then. Totally, for sure. Maybe partially. Okay. Uh, Brother Lawrence was a, uh, he was a monk in a monastery and lived his whole life there. And uh, he, despite all of this, he developed this very simple uh, uh, relationship with the Lord. And it was his. It was a relationship of his spirit with the Lord. I mean, he had. He, he was. He was really one with the Lord in his daily life. But he. But that was it. I mean, he didn't have any light. He wasn't mighty in the scriptures or anything like Luther. He just developed this simple relationship. And he's the one who wrote the book. Or really, it's just some of his letters 
compiled as a book, uh, Practicing the Presence of God. Y'all know something about that? See, this, this, this is a, really a touching book. You ought to read it sometime because it's really touching. It's touching in a couple of ways. One, it doesn't have much truth in it. Two, it doesn't, he, he still lives, you know, his job was to wash dishes in the, in the kitchen of the monastery. But he, is, he had developed his relationship with the Lord to such a degree that he was, that you just saw this man had a strong inner life with the Lord that had nothing to do with the theological system he was in. You see, uh, he was one. Then, of course, uh, this other Catholic father named Father uh, Fenelon, uh, he was kind of the uh, one who went right before Madame Guyon. Madame Guyon uh, was a uh, common woman. Uh, her husband was not a believer. And uh, she got attracted to the Lord and drawn to the Lord and also uh, developed a tremendous inner life. Uh, the thing with her is she wrote a lot of this down. Uh, I've got a book or two by her. And she she wrote this this uh, down. I think the book I got is the the secret of experiencing Jesus Christ, something like that. Anyway, she she wrote about an inner life experience of Christ on a daily basis, and her writing is quite prevailing. She's really she was very very uh, matured in the inner life, and yet nobody accepted that. And finally, they threw her in prison. She spent a few years in in the prison for her be, for being heretical. Nevertheless, she lived and died a Catholic. This was, this, this was way back in. So you see, even in the midst of some of these system, systems or, or, the, or the Roman Catholic system, there were some people who were jewels there, even in Thyatira, yeah. the Lord raised up. But anyway, finally, uh, as time passed on and the Reformation grabbed hold, these people more or less shifted uh, into the, onto the Reformation side, and that's where William Law came along. William Law uh, was a very exceptional uh, inner life person. In in uh, some of y'all may have read it, read uh, his most famous book, which is which is entitled "The Power of the Spirit." Uh, if you read that, you just you just can hardly believe a guy back then could write like that. It's really something. He blasts the Roman Catholics, but he he blasts the Protestants more. Yeah, he said. He, yeah, he uh, he said. Basically, he said. He said, "There's no difference." I mean, if you all put it put all this stuff together, he said, "There's no difference." This system did not have Christ in it, and it was way off, but it, doctrinally. And then the the Protestant system was doctrinally it's okay, but Christ is not in it. It's it's, it's just a political mental thing. So he said there's no difference. He said Christ wasn't in one and Christ didn't in the other uh, unless unless a person has, you know, this personal relationship with the Lord in an inward way. And so he he knocked he knocked everybody. The poor guy was all alone. He I don't think he had a friend in the world. I really don't. But he 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 was like that and he and he wrote uh, I started to bring that book and I said if I start reading some of those things uh I'll spend 30 minutes reading this stuff because it's so startling. Uh, but he, he made certain statements 
like about the tree of life in the Garden of Eden uh, are tremendous. And uh, it's just very good. If you ever get a chance to read it, I'd certainly recommend it. Then, uh, Andrew Murray's next. He was a Dutch Reformed missionary who uh, went to South Africa, today South Africa, uh, was a pastor in Cape Town for a while, then finally went in, inland more toward Pretoria and that area, and uh, he was a missionary. And he raised up uh, some of the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. However, uh, his life was not really that successful as a missionary. And due to that, he, was, he had such a, a large heart for the Lord, he began to seek the Lord, and, and he, he was a, gr- a, man of gr- a, a great man of prayer and also of studying the Word. And through this, and, and I would say mainly through the writings of William Law, he, he really uh, got the light about the inner life with Christ. And he became the most prolific writer of books about the inner life and and uh, his writing on the inner life is is fantastic uh, I would say he's one of the top five that have ever written and he wrote several he wrote a lot of books I, I, I think I have most of his books there are some of them are tremendous one of them is the holy of holies or he called it the holiest of all <laughs> holiest of all tremendous uh, Abiding Christ. He wrote a series to new believers called Abiding Christ. I, I read that book probably 20 times back back when I was a new believer. I mean, it, it just whatever was your need, it just seemed like he knew what it was, and he had he had a way to to supply it. It was tremendous, like that. Uh, he wrote a lot of books. Uh, my goodness, I forgot. He wrote wrote one called Like Christ. Uh, the another one was the uh, New Covenant. It's tremendous. Uh, uh, the Spirit of Christ was probably the classic of all his writings, that and the holiest of all. And he wrote The Prayer Life, or A Prayer Life, The, the Prayer Life, yeah, something I think it's called The Prayer Life. All of them were tremendous books on the inner life. Uh, and then uh, about that time, there was Jesse Penn Lewis and T. Austin Sparks, they kind of went together because she was kind of his mentor, meaning she was kind of his teacher. He was the pupil. And uh, there, there was a lot of writing about the death and resurrection of Christ. And these two really put out a lot of very, very uh, top-notch, quality-type books. I would say especially T. Austin Sparks. Uh, Jesse Penn Lewis emphasized the death of Christ and Austin Spark emphasized the resurrection of Christ. So uh, he, he, he went further, you see. He took it further. Then uh, in modern days, I put Ian Thomas. Uh, he kind of, he's also an Englishman and uh, he, he uh, uh, became probably uh, the most notable modern day preacher in England in the way of the inner life. And he brought this message to America uh, and so forth. Uh, and they had this famous convention in a, uh, a town in England called Keswick. 
and it's called the Keswick Convention. It's an interlife convention. They, they still have it every year. And Andrew Murray went back in his day and other people and so forth. And Major Thomas became the kind of the star of that for a period of time. Uh, the first time I ever heard any, uh, the, the first time when I was in college that I heard that Christ could be your life was a tape by Ian Thomas that this sister in the Baptist church loaned me. She loaned me the tape and her reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. Right. It wasn't easy to figure out how to run that thing either. <laughs> big old thing. I mean, he had to lug it around to the big old tape, you know. And uh, when I heard that, when I heard the first message, and he preached about, I th well, he had several messages. Uh, she gave me several tapes, but it was the basic thing was Christ is your life. I was just, I was just in shock. I was in shock. And so when, when, when I pick, when next, this was just right after that. I got in touch with Brother Knee's ministry through some books that were on sale. And then uh, about six or eight months after that, I found out about Brother Lee's ministry. I was a setup. I had already broken through the barrier. I played these tapes, these Ian Thomas tapes. I took them in the Baptist church I was in. I was the leader of the youth, okay? And I said, okay, in the youth meetings, we're listening to these tapes. You see, that was, that was, that was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I didn't. I didn't know any church history. I didn't know if you brought anything new in, you would you would create a, 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 a you know a reaction, right? So I I had all the college young people listening to these tapes. Okay, uh, we'll tonight we're listening to. I give them the title of the message, and uh, it'd be about Christ being your life. And I did that about five times or something, and uh, I was called in to have a little discussion about that and uh, they let me know that uh, that wasn't what they wanted their young people to hear that I shouldn't do that anymore so uh, that was that was the beginning of the end okay it was the beginning of the end I couldn't do that anyway uh, then he went to uh, he went to the he went to speak in the uh, in the assembly hall of the university he was there as a special guest because you had to go there once a week to listen to some speaker, and he was invited. And so uh, uh, if you were a freshman or a sophomore, you had to go to this assembly. And a big auditorium, and here he was, Major Thomas was going to speak. I heard him on tape. I, I mean, you just, I was just, a, you know, I was sitting there waiting for him to speak. I just, and so he started speaking about Christ's life, and I thought, oh, wow. And you know what? After about five, six, seven minutes, uh, the whole audience just tuned him out. Oh. I never heard. You, you could always tell. That you could always tell when people were listening to a speaker mm -hmm. because they put down their newspapers. You know their. You know their college. You know the daily, and they put it down. And you could. You could tell. And there was no whispering. When you, uh, when somebody was boring and they weren't interested, everybody was reading and talking, and you know it was just a mess. This was the way they listened to that. I was so, I was so disgusted. I, I couldn't believe it. And he knew it. I could tell he knew. He, he, he had lost the audience. And I, I imagine that was really a, a real suffering to him. Anyway, uh, it was very interesting because that night, that night, that very, very night, I decided, I, I don't know why, and I never do this but once or twice other than this time, but I decided to go visit this couple in the Baptist church that I went to.
and I don't know why I did, uh, except that I, you know, they were they were an unusual couple who really sought the Lord, and were really dear, really dear. So I just went over there that night. Uh, I forgot why. I have no recollection at all. But I walked in, and he was there. And they had invited him over to, you know, to visit because they were afraid he would be in town and not have any, you know, body to, you know, give him hospitality. So they, he had received their hospitality, and I went over there, and so he, the family was there, and he was there, and uh, oh, they were so glad to see me, and they introduced me to him. Of course, I already knew him right from the tape, and so uh, he didn't know I was really on to his inner life message. So. Uh, I don't think he did. Honestly, I did. I was there. I mean, they didn't expect me to come. So we started talking, and he just listened a while, listened a while, listened a while. Then he just started sharing. All of a sudden, he just, bam, he started sharing from the Gospel of John about Christ being your life. And he went on like this for a long time. And and what I remember most, he got into John 1-4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He said, he said, if you have life, you have light. No life, no light. And he, he, he was sitting next to a lamp, and he said, you see, just like this lamp, there's electricity, and so you have light. No, if you have light, you have electricity. See, no electricity, no light. <laughs> see? And, oh, it was really good. It's just like his messages I'd already listened to. So uh, I, I think he did that for my sake, thinking I was, uh, I'd never heard anything like that, which I hadn't heard much, to tell you the truth, but uh, it wasn't brand new. I'd heard his tapes several times. Anyway, that was really unusual. I thought, what in the world? What is all that about? I, I just thought that was really sovereign. Uh, anyway, it was something else. Okay, then uh, these are the inner life saints. Uh, when we get to Philadelphia, uh, we'll trace this in more detail, okay? Because it's really picked up in uh, the Brethren movement in England that uh, uh, finally led to... Uh, people taking the way of Philadelphia in a very steadfast way. Uh, so there'll be other men. But they will be, they will be hidden more, much more. These people stand out because they're mostly alone. They're mostly alone. And these other people are really in the midst of all the brothers and sisters, so they're not, they're not so famous or startling or striking, okay? But nevertheless, they were full of impact. Okay, and then it, we talked about these guys in the New World, uh, about Brainerd and Edwards and Charles Finney and D.L. Moody. Uh, and I, I would like to emphasize one thing in the New World with D.L. Moody. He was really, <coughs> like it mentions here, one person a day. He was really into this, speak to one person a day about Christ. You understand? Yeah. And... Uh, I'd, I'd like to tell one story about this, okay? Now, this is a secondhand story, but I heard it from a very reliable source, okay? <laughs> anyway, the story is this way, is uh, D.L. Moody had this habit, and so even if he was getting ready to go to bed and it just hit him that he hadn't spoken today, he would, he would put his clothes back on and go down and speak to somebody yeah. out in the street. And, and, uh, but anyway, as a rule, he would try to do this, even though his schedule was so busy, he was a very busy man in Chicago and had a, a huge, eventually a huge congregation. And uh, anyway, 
one guy saw D.L. Moody coming toward him. I think it was in a neighborhood because they were walking. And, and this guy knew evidently that Moody had this habit that he was going to talk to somebody a day, you know. And this guy evidently thought that, figured out he was going to be that person. So he, he speeded up his walk and Moody was behind him. And so he went faster and Moody went faster. <laughs> and he turned and Moody turned. And he, you know, it just, he was just trying to shake him off his trail, right? And so wherever he went, Moody went. And so finally, through all of this, he made it to his house. And he went inside his house, and Moody went inside his house. Oh. Then he went into his bedroom, and Moody went into his bedroom. <laughs> then he got under his bed, and Moody got under his bed. <laughs> and what I can't tell you is I don't know what they said under there. But anyway... I, this is, this is how it was. It was he, he was really something. During his lifetime, this is when they had that great Chicago fire. It burned down you know, most of the city. Well, he, every, his house plus you know, uh, all of the facilities of his congregation, everything was leveled. They had nothing. Uh, he said, I, I came out of that fire with two things. Uh, my life, no, no, he said, my Bible and my reputation, that's all I had. And uh, so they had to start all over. So he would go around and he'd see brothers on the street or Christians, and he'd say, he'd say, look, I know you, I know you can give, you know, twenty-five dollars to help rebuild. He would call it the church, his church, you know, or something like that. I know you, I know you have twenty-five dollars. Well, no, you know this. I mean, no one has any money. I said, you have twenty-five dollars, and you know it. I mean, he ran around and he just buttonholed everybody and made them give money so they could start to worship again. You know, he was like, he was really bold. Yeah. Uh, don't confuse him with a fundraiser, okay? He wasn't that, but but he 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 was really something. Okay. Uh, then okay now then down here when we got to the missionaries, uh, uh, I we didn't get to spend any time. I would like to just mention. Hudson Taylor and C.T. Studd in this kind of way. These guys were very, very exceptional, okay? Uh, Hudson Taylor, I would say, was the, to me, and I, I would say to, uh, to many, many others also hold this view, he was the model missionary. Uh, as a young man, he, he, he got to know about China. He got to know that it was not Christianized that it was uh, full of pagan religion and uh, he was so burdened and he knew that it was the most populated country on earth and so he got uh, he got so burdened that uh, as a young man like a late teenager type person uh, that he began to plan his whole life to one day go to China as a missionary and uh, everywhere he went he would talk about this and sometimes he couldn't talk he just could kind of weep, you know. And uh, he finally published a paper called China's Millions. And uh, anyway, he established this missionary society. Uh, it had a famous slogan, which I'm trying to remember right now. Uh, I think it was, the Lord will save and the Lord will provide. And it was very strong not to solicit help, kind of like George Mueller. In fact, he was very influenced by George Mueller's writings, if I recall. And uh, 
anyway, he established the China Inland Mission. And so uh, he went to China, and he was, he was the one who broke the barrier down that if you're a missionary, you don't go and try to Christianize them into your brand of right. Christianity right. and into your culture. You go and bring Christ to them in their culture. Right. You see, so he became a native right. Chinese. You see, he was an Englishman, but he dressed like a Chinese. Back then, they had the robes, you know, and things, and uh, he wore his hair in a pigtail and uh, spoke fluent Chinese and, uh, and uh, preached the gospel all over the place right. and led a lot of people to Christ. And all the ones that came to work with him in China, they just would stream in every year. Uh, he would personally try to help them have a big turn in their life away from their old thinking to bear a burden for China in a different way than what they, than most missionaries did. And uh, China in the Inland Mission was very prevailing. There was a lot of thousands of people saved through the China Inland Mission. Well, Hudson Taylor's story uh, would be good, except he ran into, he ran into uh, a real experience with the Lord during that time that no doubt was, uh, uh, let's put it this way, not somewhere during that time of his missionary life, uh, let's say before the first half ended, uh, he became he became totally overwhelmed by his inability, by his, uh, by his uh, weaknesses, by his flesh, uh, by nearly, I mean, he just realized that he, he just, I mean, he, was, he, he realized he was a person that was described in Romans 7. He didn't know what to do with himself. And he got to the point where he thinking, well, maybe the Lord wants us to be this miserable on earth so that we'll appreciate heaven more, you know. He was kind of like that mentality, and, and uh, uh, the crushing burden of all of that work in China on his shoulders, and here he wasn't even experiencing, uh, you know, to him a satisfactory experience of Christ. And at that time, through some real anguish, uh, the Lord showed him that the, the same revelation that he'd shown some of these other men and that was that uh, uh, what he had been trying to do by human effort that uh, Christ could do inside of him with, by another life. Amen. So he saw Christ was his life. Amen. And from that point, the whole, his whole being plus the whole work took a drastic turn. And when you read his biography, uh, it's very commonplace until you get up to this point that... Uh, the Lord brought him through many things to bring to the point where he could reveal himself as life. And then uh, the impact that had on him and so many others was really fantastic. So that was a key thing with him. Uh, his biography I, I, is also very inspiring. Uh, I think uh, his relative, who was it? The uh, Howard. The Howard's daughter, Howard. What was it? Son in law. The name Howard. God's man in China. God's man in China. Yeah. By son, Howard, somebody wrote it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it's a very good book. Uh, 
Where my copy is, I do not know. <laughs> C.T. Studd, C.T. Studd, right? Uh, he was uh, he was not he was not like Hudson Taylor. He was uh, he was kind of uh, I don't know what you'd call it. He was a little bit uh, uh, he was a free spirit. How about that way? He was a free spirit. He for, number one, he was filthy rich. You know, he, he, he was a son of one of these rich English patricians that lived in a, you know, a huge manor in the country of, with massive amounts of acreages. And, you know, England is famous for this kind of living because they practice a law, you know, primogeniture, which means the inheritance goes to the firstborn only. And so it stays intact. It never gets split up like in America, you know, it gets scattered everywhere. But so these great estates stayed intact down through the centuries. Anyway, he was uh, a son of one of these, had uh, whatever he wanted. And uh, anyway, despite all of that, uh, uh, his father had some guests out to stay there at times, and one of them was a preacher. And he came, and this preacher kind of cornered him and asked him some questions that he could squirm out of. And uh, anyway in essence preach the gospel to him and he got saved and then he felt uh, at this time I should say he was he was he was very famous in in the athletic world in England uh, they played the sport there called cricket okay which for the life of me I still don't understand that game so I, it has a bat and a ball but I mean other than that uh, I mean you don't pitch it you bowl it and and uh, really it bounces along Ken I'm sure you've seen some real uh, wild games of cricket, right? I don't know, maybe you played in them. But anyway, uh, he practiced. The way he had this huge bedroom, and one of them was, one side was this all mirror, and uh, right in the middle was where the mirrors joined with a line. It was just waist high. So he practiced his swings until it just matched that line. So his swing was totally level. You know, that's one big uh, thing if you try to hit something, it's not is to have a level swing. So he got this kind of perfect swing developed, and he was very coordinated. And so uh, uh, he became England's foremost cricket player, which is, which is like saying, he, you know, yeah, he, he's, uh, that's, that's their equivalent of our baseball or uh, Mexico soccer or something like that, you see. Anyway, he was he was a all England cricketer. <laughs> cricketer. Then he got a call, and and the thing that touched him is the Lord spoke to him on this verse about uh, if you want to follow me, sell all, give to the poor, and come and follow me. So he divested himself of all every penny of his inheritance and left it all. I forgot it was a huge sum. And then he went to the mission field, first of all to China during his early years, to India during his middle years, and to Africa where, where his work was the most noted during his later years. And uh, the famous, the famous, uh, it was a famous thing in those days. This affected many young men that a man of his famous uh, notoriety in England would give up not only his fame 
as an athlete, but as money, as a, and go and have nothing. And they had have pictures, in, I think, in in his biography. I do have that biography. I still have that one. And I and I will continue to have that one. <laughs> on that. But anyway, it showed pictures. Here are some of C.T. Studd's earlier friends, and you know, these are all these young English guys, you know, gathered around cricket players and arms across each other. And then here's some of C.T. Studd's later friends in Africa, and he would be standing there with all these natives around him, you know, uh, barely dressed, and some of them were pygmies, and you know, uh, and, and there he was, you know, as an old man, and uh, his friends were living in in the, the depths of Africa. It was, it, it was, it's inspiring. Then you have these other, uh, really, Kerry in India was a real pioneer. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. Salvation Army is kind of a joke in this country now. What it represents is where you go to buy things if you don't have much money, right? Uh, Salvation Army and Goodwill, those are the two places to shop if you don't have, if you don't have a lot of cash. Uh, Y'all want to know where they're located in town? I can, I can. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of stuff's not worth buying, but sometimes, you, boy, somebody just uh, donates. Rich people give stuff to the Goodwill and Salvation Army, and uh, you can get something for a good price. That's the way the concept is today. But back then, the Salvation Army began very spiritually. It was very spiritual. And it was organized along the lines of a military concept with a general, and that was General Booth. And, you know, you had this whole chain of command, and so they ran it like an army. So they called it the Salvation Army. But their main goal was to preach the gospel and to pro provide for the needs of the poor. And so that's, that's where it still lingers over today. So the gospel is gone, basically speaking. But they still run this organization of providing cheap cheap stuff, okay? Uh, do what? A massive movement? Well, you see, these missionaries, these guys that were these pioneers that became famous, uh, these inspired thousands of young men and women in England and America, especially these two countries, but uh, other European countries as well, but especially England and America. England first and America second. And this and the missionary movement began. And uh, uh, they went to every country on the, on, the, on the face of the earth, had missionaries to go and preach the gospel of salvation everywhere. And they translated the Bible into uh, every, every tongue. Okay, so it, it became and still is a massive thing. It is a massive thing. Okay, the, the, the missionary movement of the, of the later days of the Reformation became a massive thing. Okay, then, uh, I, I'm running out of gas here a little bit. Uh, I wanted to mention two famous revivals that happened during this time. How about, how about we stop, how about I stop right here and maybe, uh, see, I, I want to mention that and I want to mention one thing I feel, one or two things I feel on the uncompleted works of the Reformation on this last page that uh, I should have put, I didn't put down, okay? So let me stop for a little bit and see if now y'all have some feeling or some taste 
of this period of time in history. Maybe y'all might have uh, some some question to for fellowship. Okay, because uh, let's see. Yeah, go ahead, Ruth. That's right. Okay, uh, Ruth's question was: was uh, we know that the Catholic? You know, think we know that the Catholics persecuted the translation, and people are trying to translate the word. That's that's history. Did the uh, did the uh, Church of England ever do this? Well, the Church of England just didn't all of a sudden one day uh, become the Church of England. You know what I mean? It had this evolution to it, where it was a huge mixture of Catholicism, but they did kick the Pope out. Why? Because Henry couldn't get a divorce unless he kicked the Pope out and annulled his headship. So he became the head. Uh, in that context, if you consider that the Church of England, yeah, there is persecution. But as it progressed and Protestantism really got rooted in England, uh, I would say at that by that point, uh, England not only didn't persecute after after a time, but they became kind of the place to be if you wanted to disseminate the truth. That uh, England was uh, became a very educated country, uh, ahead in industrial sciences, uh, including printing things like that. They were quite prevalent. Uh, they struggled a lot more than some other places to finally come out of Catholicism. But once they did, they were raised up and for a, a couple of centuries mightily used by the Lord. I would say not until after World War I when they forsook the oversight of Israel and their care for Israel did they lose God's blessing. Up until that time, they had God's blessing. By that time, I believe it really shifted to America because America fought for the Jews. And God honored that, I believe. He honored that, and he honored the, the uh, principle of uh, uh, acknowledging God, which this country is based on. So, I don't know. I think your question is would be answered as... Uh, it was just a mixture. England was England was always in a turmoil for a long period of time as to as to who and what the kind of nation it would be religiously, and most of the people just laid back and let it go, <laughs> and let them fight it out at the top. You know, uh, when Cromwell, you know Oliver Cromwell, y'all have heard of him in history. He was a Protestant, and he was born again according <coughs> to his testimony. He being basically a military man, he took it upon himself to really uh, secure England for Protestantism. And uh, Cromwellian England uh, in history is a history of uh, religious intolerance in reverse. 
okay, whereas the Catholics used to be the ones that wouldn't tolerate anything. A lot of the Reformation, it threw off Catholicism, but after a short time, it took on the same attitude, you see. Just like the Puritans that came to this country, they wouldn't tolerate anything except what they felt, you see. Some of it was according to the Bible, and some of it wasn't. But anyway, the point is they wouldn't tolerate. Uh, the Reformation, the Reformation never could shake loose this one basic fault, and it, it affected everything. They felt that the kingdom of God should be uh, should be uh, worked out on this earth and it should involve all humanity. And they never saw that the church was in another realm and it was heavenly. And they lived on this earth. And even they mingled with people on this earth, but they were not involved, you see. They never saw that. So consequently, when they tried to confederate and, and, and consolidate their religious gains politically, this is when all the trouble came in. It was just wars after war after war. Uh, and some of the worst wars were, were unbelievers on one side under one theological banner fighting unbelievers on another side under another theological banner. Nearly all the wars, they, they, when you analyze it, they had some kind of difference in religious beliefs, but if you really analyze it, neither one of them really heard the gospel of Christ in a way that they had a, a, a personal relationship. It was, all, it was all political. Religion and politics became so uh, intertwined that it was impossible to separate them, you see. So Cromwell died on the battlefield just like Zwingli did. In fact, his one of his final words to... Uh, uh, the guy he, he brought asked for one of the uh, religious leaders to come into his tent while he was dying, and he asked if you know the the question. He says, uh, "Is it possible to fall from grace?" And the guy said, "No, it's not possible. If you 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 can you cannot fall from grace." And Cromwell said something, you know, words to the effect that, thank God, because I know that I was in grace at one time. Which implied he wasn't in grace at that time, right? <laughs> and so that's, he died that way. So evidently he was converted, but he's, he, he, he was going to fight. Uh, I mean, at one time they were persecuted heretics, and then after a while they began to persecute. That's why that's why they came to the New World. They were being persecuted right and left. You see, the guys who spun out of it all, that really kept the line, the pureness was kept by God uh, through all of this, uh, are are really the unsung heroes. You see. And uh, uh, I have a very, very good book on that that uh, gives you the principle in about ten examples in history. Uh, that's the one I loaned to you, Scott. Right? What's the name of it? What's the name of that book? Yeah, the reformers and their stepchildren. You see, the reformers were one thing, and their children are one thing. 
But this book says their stepchildren. Who are their stepchildren? Their stepchildren are the ones who had the reality. And so they threw off both both Catholicism and the mixture of the Reformation and just went back totally to the Word of God about everything. And they got out of the political arena. And they just wanted to live. And uh, this outraged the Reformers because they were trying to get political consolidation, you know, and make the kingdom of God something uh, earthly. But these people saw beyond that. And uh, uh, they were they were very much uh, persecuted because they were like that. And in some ways, in some ways, they were too much. You see, the so-called iconoclastic controversy, you know, icons being idols, and the Roman Catholic Church being full of statues and figurines and figures and all kinds of things like that, paintings. Well, as soon as the light came, the reformers came out strongly in the, with the light. You can't have these images. This is, against the, this is against the commandments. You can't have idols. These are idols. Don't you know these are idols? And, okay, you see, idols, in, idols saturate the whole earth. Some of them are Buddhist idols, some of them are Hindu idols, some of them are Christian idols. Okay, but anyway, you're not supposed to have any graven image. Okay, that's definite. And so they read this, and this worked on their consciences, you see. Well, we, we got all of these cathedrals, and they're full of idols, and what do we do? And this worked on their consciences until they really began to feel that they were disobeying God, some, some people. And this really was a struggle. And and why? Because they never saw, it never was clear to them that they had a heavenly calling. They were just, they lived in the heavens. And they weren't trying, God didn't call them to straighten out the earth. He called them to be lights, to shine. He didn't call them to to fight and arrange and maneuver and kill and, and, and uh, set up a government or anything for the world. You see what I'm saying? And they never saw that. And so... Uh, uh, at one time when the thing reached its head and people were so enraged at Rome and the, and the, the fighting fever was so high uh, they just had this movement just swept through certain areas of Europe where they just went to these cathedrals knocked down the doors and took every statue every figure of any sort and just crushed it and threw it into the river or burned it or and uh, you can imagine the reaction this caused. So this was just going back and forth and back and forth like this, you see. Well, uh, you've got to give them credit. They were, they, were, they were really gutsy, right? On the other hand, uh, it really was not a glory to God. Right? You still go in those cathedrals. And the walls, they'll have little recesses made for the statues to sit in. They're all barren. Hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of them are sitting there. How about that? Yeah. In England, particularly. Okay. Now, now they have an idol of William Farrell stepping on an idol. Uh, yeah, that's a good example. Yeah. That's a good example. Like Andrew, Andrew Murray in Cape Town, there's a big statue of him uh, right there. I mean, what a shame! What a shame! But but uh, Peter, Peter has been made the uh, you know the first pope and the head of the, the Roman Catholic Church. All goes back to Saint Peter. 
So you're not responsible for some for things people do. Okay, one point I want to I want to make very much, uh, and that is, in the uncompleted works of Sardis concerning Christ. You remember all the lists concerning Christ. These things were not touched uh, unless they were unless they were done by people who were persecuted, basically. Okay, but I I should mention this one thing. This this was recovered, and that was that up until the up until a certain time there was always this massive argument and I do mean massive between God's responsibility and man's responsibility how much part does God play and how much part does man play this is the so-called free will versus the uh, predestination okay where predestination God does it all and free will it's man does it all okay and you took sides, and these sides split. This is one of the reasons, over this doctrine, uh, many of the, of the uh, Reformed churches split, and it became uh, further kinds of denominations. See, Just in the Baptist church, you know, you have the free will Baptists, and then you have other kind of Baptists, just in that one line. Okay, so this became a real uh, thing. Well, uh, one thing that the Lord recovered was it's not that God does everything and it's not that man does everything and it's neither the principle is the principle of incarnation that God's way is that man cooperates with God God initiates but you have to cooperate with that man doesn't initiate man doesn't need to initiate God has already done it all he is waiting he's ready he's available he's he solved all the problems and he's He's given us Himself and all the positive things, and it is available to us. But we have to cooperate if we want to experience it. He will not force it on us. Neither do we have to get into the free will that, oh, if we pray and fast and if we go to extra links, well, maybe God will drop a blessing down on us. This is way too much, you see. It's neither. It's, it's neither side. It's... It's man cooperating with God to fulfill his purpose. That was, that was an item that had to be recovered. Okay. Are you going to say something on the revivals? On the revivals? Two big revivals. Well, uh, one of them was not that big of a revival, but it, it was a big reaction. I would call one room is a revival and one room is a reaction. The reaction occurred early in this century, and that is in, in the 19th century, not in the 20th century, but in the 19th century, so much light and truth had come out from the Bible. And it, I mean, uh, there, was, there was so much there that man in general, I don't mean man, Christians in general, slowly from the early part of that century to the latter part of that century slid into becoming very, very mental and academic type Christians. Very prevailing in the head. Knowing so much. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up. 
right? This was the state. It's so much knowledge. To the extent that they that anything to do with uh, inward experience, they would say, "Oh, that's just that's just uh, yeah, subject blind subjectivism or something like that." They they would they tried to really put down all of that. They they wouldn't like some of the writings of the inner life people. Then at this time, early in the 20th century, God had a big reaction to all of that knowledge and all of the putting down of the of personal experience. And, and he did it drastically. And they even came to the point in this academic realm where they said the gifts of the Spirit and the movement of the Holy Spirit, that was for the age of Acts, but is no longer applied today because we have the completed Word of God. And so we, you know, it became, it, it got to that point. And they dispensationalized the Spirit mainly out of Christian experience. You see? And then in this century, in America, and this happened in, Cal- happened in Los Angeles is where it started, there was a big reaction. And there was, a, and uh, on Azusa Street in, in, in Los Angeles, the, the Spirit really reacted to this in a huge revival broke out and the main aspect of that revival was people were having miraculous experiences of the Holy Spirit and speaking in different tongues and things like that and this thing caught on and it swept the whole west coast and infiltrated the whole country (coughs) and basically the uh, Pentecostal movement was born out of that okay what we know as the United Pentecostals came from that and you see, uh, what happened, we, we, we can look at it now and realize they went too far. If you talk to a, what we call a UP, a United Pentecostal, you can realize a couple of things. Number one, uh, basically speaking, they really love the Lord. Number two, to them, the experience of Christ is, is a miracle or it's definitely nothing to brag about. Okay, it's a, almost, almost a miracle or nothing, okay? <laughs> They went way too far. To them, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was 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 speaking in tongues only, and that was the only way to define it. Well, that was way too far, and 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 they swung way too far. But one thing that did happen, uh, it shocked. This reaction shocked the the mentality and the academic way of following Christ and people start realizing God is alive. I mean, people were getting healed and all kinds. You couldn't deny it, you see. Uh, so this, this was a reaction that happened. And this happened in this country in the early part of this century on Azusa Street. Uh, so uh, God's recovery is, is a lot like this. In other words, things are at a certain point. And God reacts. Man goes too far, God reacts. God reacts until eventually he's going to arrive at the point where he gets Philadelphia. That's, everything is for Philadelphia. Martin Luther didn't know it, but he was for Philadelphia. You see, what his life all, was all about was that one day God would get a church in Philadelphia and based on that, Christ would come back to marry the bride. He just, that's what he was for. He just didn't know that, you see. Everybody was just for that. Uh, uh, all the great books that Andrew Murray wrote 
were so that Philadelphia could be produced. He just didn't know it, you see. Uh, he, he might have thought some general concept, but he didn't have that kind of clarity of thought. I don't know. That's not, he didn't. And no one did, you see. But when we get into Philadelphia, I think we'll see more. Uh, God was moving. And all the ones, if they were faithful to the light of their time, and the light that they had, and they really gave themselves, then those are the ones in Revelation 2 and 3 that he says, he who overcomes, you know, th these are the ones who overcame. You see, they were there in all the seven churches. Okay? And they were, they were fighting. What were they fighting for? For Philadelphia. So the Lord would come back and establish his kingdom. But they just didn't realize that. Okay, maybe you have a question. Yeah, I think they were definitely, uh, they were considered radicals, extremists, and so forth, because their day, th there were nobody to, there weren't many people anyway to sympathize with them. So mostly they were alone. For any, for one person that would sympathize with them, there was ten people to, to throw rocks at them. Okay. So, uh, they, they just fulfilled their, their, uh, they ran the race and they finished their course and they'll walk with the Lord in white. They're, they're real overcomers. But that doesn't, still doesn't get us Philadelphia. Philadelphia, if they did all of that and Philadelphia doesn't come out eventually as, as a bride for Christ, then everything they did is in vain as far as God's getting his testimony. See? They have their reward, that's no doubt. But uh, the reason they had the reward is they were fighting for what they saw was God's interest. For the, for the light that they had at whatever point they had it. So we have to, if we had their spirit, if we had their heart, and our knowledge, our revelation at this stage, we would be, uh, we would be... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, invincible. Nothing could over. The problem is always with God is, is to get the revelation or the, the, the true knowledge and light, the truth, matched with the right heart and the right spirit. It's easy to have one and not the other. These inner light people didn't have all that knowledge, but they had... <laughs> Brother Lawrence, he learned to enjoy Christ washing dishes to an extent that he, he uh, I mean, if I ever got to that extent, I would think I'd already been raptured. But he didn't know, he, he's still a Catholic. I mean, still thinking the statues, there was nothing wrong with them. 
It's just a difference between 500 years. What the what a difference 500 years makes, you know. Uh, yeah, Tyndale was uh, Tyndale translation came out in the 1530s, and King James's translation came came out in 1607 or 1611. 1611. You can see it on the inside of your pardon. So it's approximately let's say 75 years later that King James had an authorized version done. Well, there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, uh, and King James was a good version for the language of that day. Okay. Uh, as far as effort and scholarship put in on a translation, that one was a, a good one. The problem is, uh, it's, it's, too, it's, too, it's 1611, that's a long time ago. Words change their meanings, you see. Uh, I can give you some striking examples, but so you read it with today's dictionary understanding, but it wasn't 1611 dictionary understanding, but the word is the same, so it, it's a problem, you see. So you got to update translations, not to change anything, but to update it so that it means what the original Greek manuscripts mean. See, that's why you keep improving translations, not to change them, but to make them accurate. King James is no longer accurate on certain critical things because the very word is defined differently uh, from 1611 to today's time. You see, you know in John 14 we say, it says, you know, in my father's house are many mansions and we just say, oh, what? that's a big joke. You know, isn't that goofy to think mansions, just a big fleshly mansion and all the luxury of a mansion that that's what it's going to be like in, uh, in, in glory, right? And we all say, oh, that's, that's, how could they possibly translate it like that? Uh, they did a good job. Back then, mansion meant abode. Right. It didn't mean a big mansion, like we think. It meant abode. But see, we changed. The Greek didn't change, and they were okay then. You see, but the whole thing changed. That's right. Exactly right. So now we have to we have to translate that. Otherwise, we will get a, we'll get a false concept. In my father's house are many mansions. What pops into your mind when the word mansion is said? You see, a dwelling place. Does that pop into your mind? No. So see that that's. Give us a time allows just a short description of uh, Brother Nee's contribution or tie to um, the practice of um, his practice. Yeah, I'll give you a long description as soon as we get to Philadelphia. <laughs> Is that fair? That's fair, okay. 
What happened to China at the point when uh, communist China took over? What happened to the Christian movement at that point? And what, whatever the USSR is never mentioned in the history. The USSR is never mentioned in the history? Yeah. I mean, was there no move? In the Reformation, was there no move? Not much, no. <laughs> Russian Russian uh, church history is real simple, okay? Now, I, this doesn't bring us right up to now, but going back to the Bolshevik Revolution, because when that happened in 1917, they officially became an atheist nation, okay? Now, you know, things loosened up in the last few years, right? Okay, so up until 1917, Russia was like this. Uh, Russia was a nation basically without a religion, okay? They actually, you, you might not believe this, but historically they went in search to get a national religion. And you know where they went? They ended up, they went all over the place. They sent envoys out to check out all the different religions. And they ended up, in, in one of them, ended up in Constantinople, today's uh, uh, Istanbul. And there they touched the Greek Orthodox Church, which was a split from Roman Catholicism in uh, 1054. You, you, you understand that? One of the one of the one of the sides stayed in Rome, and the other one went to Constantinople. Okay, they split this way. There's very little difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church, except the headship. One is one man, the Pope, and the other is several men, which is an oligarchy versus a monarchy. Okay, but basically they practice all of the sacraments and the icons and things like this. There's not much difference. Okay. Uh, at least not from a not from a point of view that we would take. Maybe they they see major points of difference. Okay, which I could uh, I did I, I I did a study on, on on the Greek Orthodox Church one time, and I, I was really amazed at uh, the religious differences they had that they thought were so major that to me both of them were so erroneous that you just throw it all out, you know. And they but they were just holding on to it, you know. It's, it's amazing. But anyway, the, the, the thing that happened is these Russian people finally came to, to uh, Constantinople and there they were conducting their mass. And their mass, which uh, whether you call it mass or the Lord's table, I'm not sure what term they used, but anyway, it was, it was a kind of mass. It was so elaborate, you know, you can imagine what the high mass is like in St. Peter's Basilica. Well, they had their own form of it there in Constantinople. And it was so majestic and so impressive, and they were and these Russian envoys were so awed by it that they uh, became affiliated with the, with Greek Orthodoxy, and this became became the church. This became the brand of uh, uh, religion that was uh, embraced by Russia. Okay, when when uh, Eastern Orthodoxy was attacked by the Turks. You remember me talking about how the Turks came all the way around? They overran all of that. So the church, which was the, uh, the Byzantine Empire at that time, was basically the Greek Orthodox Church. Okay, At that time, the Greek Orthodox fled, and you know where they went to? Russia. Russia. And so the Greek Orthodox Church became the official church in exile, and the church in exile became the Russian Orthodox Church. So the Russian Orthodox Church, for uh, a lengthy period of time, was the was the uh, bastion, okay, was the center 
of Greek Orthodoxy, only it was called Russian Orthodoxy. So Russian Orthodoxy became very prevailing there. And it was very prevailing. Now that they can go back and worship, a lot of their, a lot of their ancestors were Russian Orthodox, and they go back to that, more so than Protestants. So they go back to that. Okay. Of course, the word is getting in now at a pretty prolific rate, but uh, things are changing. But the heritage going back a long way is Russian Orthodox. That's why today, you know, when they give the pictures of the Kremlin, you all know what the Kremlin is. You see, the Kremlin is just uh, a lot of government buildings, some of which were old religious buildings. That's why you see these little, uh, right. you know what, the, 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 they're called, uh, what, minarets? Is that what they're called? What are they called, Ken? Minarets? Or, or, yeah, anyway, they look like little turnip tops. You see them? That, that's the Russian Orthodox uh, buildings, cathedrals. Yeah, that's their trademark. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Everything went underground. Yep. Underground or or pay the price. That's right. But <laughs> 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 we'll, we'll talk more about China because see that's part of. That's part of some of our heritage we want to get into in more detail. If you don't believe it's Philadelphia, we won't get into it, but I, I believe it is, so I intend to get into it. It's no small thing what the Lord did in China. Was England the first big church? Not to my knowledge, it's not. I, I, as far as I know... Uh, the German state churches first, Lutheran, the Lutheran. Well, we call them Lutherans. It doesn't matter. I don't know what they might have called them at, right at first, but as far as I know, the Lutherans took the lead in that way. But a lot of those were happening simultaneously. I can't, I, I'm not too sure, to tell you the truth. I'm not into that kind of details with history. I'm not, I'm not into these little uh, nuances of things. I'm just kind of wondering how they, how they, uh, I mean, I understand how the English I would say, okay, I see your question. I think it's the opposite way around. The state was anxious to embrace a religion that everybody could live with and would also keep Roman Catholicism, keep their hands off. So they just developed, you see. You're born a German, you're automatically a member of the Lutheran Church. You're baptized at a certain day after you're born, and uh, that's it, you see. Same with the Church of England. Same with a lot of other state churches. The state church, that's why Revelation says Babylon, you know, uh, Babylon the Great, the mother of the prostitutes of the earth. Then who, who are the daughters, you see? The daughters are the state churches, you see. The mother is, is one thing. They threw off the mother, but, but the mother still has a lot of daughters that what? Are infiltrated with the mother's essence, you see. And so the difference is there, but the similarity is also there. So they're a daughter, just like any daughter. You see, like 
uh, you're the essence of your of your uh, of your mother, right? But you, there's a difference. There's a difference. But but also there's a similarity. You see, so the mother has the daughters, and the daughters have you know. It, this is the way it is today. The degree to which you have the leaven of of the mother is the degree to which you're one of the daughters. Were you going to talk about another revival? Yeah, I was, but it's too complicated. I, I think uh, the interest level would not be too good right now. What about, we've got another point on here. Yeah, and I decided the uh, same thing. I think we've <laughs> used our we've used our interest level up tonight. So I, how, about we, how about we stop here and not use any more time? Uh, could we have a little prayer? Amen. Okay. Amen.